Welcome to SelfDiscoveryWisdom.com, formerly known as SelfDiscovery Media. On these podcasts, you're going to hear people who speak from the heart. They've taken the journey in life. Many things have happened to them, but they've changed it to happening for them. And in their strength, their courage, they've discovered their abilities and their wisdom, and they are now sharing it here with you. Do enjoy each show. We bring it to you with love and knowing that it's going to help you on your journey of life. All right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Raising Our Gifted Children right here on selfdiscoverywisdom.com. I'm your host, Sarah Troy, and my beautiful guest here today talking about children and behavioral science around change is Michaela Gaffin Stone, known as Mickey. So she's going to be called Mickey today. We're going to be talking about um, how she's an advocate. Uh, first, since she was a child, living in uncertain frequency and unsafe circumstances, um, she learned early to gauge people's moods and anticipate their behaviors in order to know when to hide and when to run and keep herself safe. No child should have to do that. And as she grew older, her sense of justice and need to protect others from became quite fierce. Then she had her own children. She traveled the world, encountering different cultures, learning the norms, the rules, the restrictions placed on children and uh, dictating the role of the parent. And she intentionally parented her own children differently um, from her peers and from what was the norm. And since she has made it her mission to help parents learn ways to do better with their children uh, than they have received from their own parents. This is not about blaming anyone. It's about showing how you can do things differently and break that cycle. She was born in England as a lifelong learner and a nomad, having lived in eight countries to date and considered herself a global citizen. Where she came from is a story, not a place. Home is wherever she is right now. And she took her uh, the expertise in uh, tropical diseases, nursing from London, UK to Bangladesh, volunteering in an orphanage, later single-handedly running a high commissions medical clinic and caring for upwards of 300 people. Then she became a Montessori assistant teacher in Belgium so she could work with the same system where her kids were in. And she studied Buddhism, mindfulness with the monks in Singapore and for more, uh, <laughs> Bhutan, India, Latka, uh, Sikha, I'm probably pronouncing these wrong, Nepal, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Los and Cambodia. Now, folks, she's a very boring person. She's done nothing in her life. Uh, she looked to learning uh, in college in the USA and became a board certified behavior analyst. And the science of behavior changed, ignited a deep understanding of human potential, diving into the doctrine studies, fueled by desire uh, to share her expertise of knowledge of human behavior with people, opening up to receive all that they have to offer the she has to offer. And throughout her travels, raising her two sons to be responsible global citizens was a priority. And sharing uh, through that experience and study is what she's here for. I'm very honored to say that she's going to be a part of our Forgotten Children series, book two, contributing a chapter, hopefully coming out by Christmas, if we can get it all together, and her wisdom and knowledge on that, which is so desperately needed. But boy, girl, you just sit down doing nothing, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boring life. Boring life. You know, we well, have all the time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, I think kind of the best experience in life is experience in life. You know, it, you've immersed yourself into it. You've allowed yourself 
to learn from different modalities, different people, different cultures. And all of that kind of, it's like a beautiful ingredient in the stew pot, isn't it? And then from that comes understanding of you know, how to serve it, whom to serve it to. And this is where you are today, those behavioral studies of our children. And you know that I'm on this campaign for us to do better by our children, to listen to our children, to see the beautiful gift that they are and mm -hmm. to nurture them in that gift and not dictate what they should become or box them in or categorize them or restrict them, but, but to be the wind behind their back. So I know we're on the same page there. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. And absolutely uh, dictating to kids never goes well. No. It, it can't. They're, they're becoming their own person and, and you can't dictate that. No, but uh, I mean, we, you know, we're custodians of our children. We're here to guide them. You know, through through what we've learned, from what we observe, we guide them, but we want them to do better than us anyway. We do. It's just that sometimes we think that the path that we can see is better and therefore they should do that. But I found through personal experience, too, that if you can back off and give those kids some space, this does not mean being permissive and anything goes. That is a different matter. Yeah. But in matters of deciding what you want to do next and, and finding your future, dictating that does not go well. But if you step back and give them some support to make those decisions and support to find out more, they can go to some really interesting places. And you might not even know those things exist yet. Yes. In fact, they might not exist yet. Yeah. Your child might be the one to create it. Yes. I think one of the things when you look at them when they're young, <clears throat> and I've got two grandsons right now. And, you know, when you're raising your own children, sometimes you're so busy raising them that you, you haven't got the time to observe as you would like to, because it's the next meal, the next this, the next that. But sitting back and looking at my grandson of 28 months, my other grandson's only three months, so he's in a different form of discovery. But watching him discover, watching him explore, watching him get excited over the simplest of things and wanting to know more, wanting to do more. And I think that's something that we lose as we get older. We lose that sense of wonderment. And if we could keep that exploration and that wonderment alive in our children, I think it's always something that makes them look forward and inquire and investigate and want to know more about. Well, you know, one of the problems that our kids face, that we face too, is, going to say it, it's the school system. Yes. The school yes. system has been designed to churn out people who say yes and who do the, you know, the factory jobs, oh, yeah. envisage the assembly line type mentality. Yes. They don't question authority. They don't try to do something new. They're just here to make your thing happen for you if you're the boss and that's yes. it. And so we take kids who are born to move and explore and investigate and get dirty and stick mm -hmm. their fingers into things. And we take those kids and we tell them to sit down and listen. Yeah. They are exactly not designed for that. Mm -hmm. And so when you force this onto children, this is exactly the way they lose their wonderment of the world because what's to wonder at if you can't explore it? Yes. And that's why I went into Montessori when I did because that is a system where the teachers follow the child and what that means is they look to see what is that child interested in investigating? Let me give them more of that. Let me facilitate that learning. 
And what other things can we bring into that learning rather than making the child sit down, listen and regurgitate what you tell them? And if you look at the school system in the US right now, it is under attack in a number of states where things are being altered in history, mm. dramatically so. Certain things are permitted to be said, others are not. It's it's like a dictatorship in those areas. Mm-hmm. And these kids are going to grow up learning these things. Now, a comparison I can make is I've been in China and I've been in Tibet and people in China are taught from the get-go in school, that Tibet is part of China. And so if you talk to somebody from the mainland, they have no question in their mind, no question in their heart, Tibet for them is a part of China. If you talk to somebody from Tibet, they have a very, very different view. And if you look at history from outside, we have a different view again. So when we're manipulating children's knowledge in this way, what are we producing? Yes. Wow. Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> I hate to say it, fake news, fake information. And it's information, information everywhere. I, and the thing is, is what is real? And, you know, what are we really looking for in life? We're looking at something that we can connect to that feels real, right? Mm-hmm. That feels tangible in our life, that we feel we're a part of, that we feel that we can be. And if all they have around them is quite honestly lies, Either they learn to be a damn good liar along with it, or they distrust everything. Right. Or they they simply, uh, you see, another thing in schools, I don't know how it is in Canada at the moment, but I think it was trending the same way when I was last there, that critical thinking is not being taught in schools anymore. Mm. And that alone is a travesty. Yes. You need that more than ever. When you look at social media, very little of it is actually true. Mm-hmm. It's not, that's not its purpose. So, you know, the, the stories that are out there, the misinformation is staggering. And since the 80s in the US, when the laws were changed to allow more broad advertising and advertising to children and so on, the gloves came off in the marketing industry and they are now telling blatant lies and, you know, they're, they're looking at how can we get away with this? Where are the loopholes? Yes. And they're, they're doing that. So whether it's goods, whether it's, um, you know, the current news or whether it's what you're eating in your food, there is misinformation out there aplenty. And behind it is the lobby groups, the people looking for money. They are not looking yes. out for our kids. No, no, they no, are not no, looking no. out for our well-being. No, absolutely not even on no. the agenda. Uh, everything is bottom line dollar and how many can I make how powerful does it make me and then how manipulative can I be over everybody else that dictatorship where we're creating a lot of little dictators along the way and then we get monsters that we know of and and we anybody with any form of common sense here's what's coming out of their mouth and we know it's utterly ridiculous incredibly fake totally irresponsible but you've got people that are lapping it up because they're so used to buying the garbage they've never questioned whether it's true or not and that those I kind of call them humanoids because they will not think for themselves they're all being programmed and that is a danger uh, such a huge danger to the survival of the humanity well the the other thing is that those kind of pieces of news or those pieces of information that give you that little sort of grr 
response or, you know, they get you going, which is generally what the misinformation does. That triggers dopamine in the brain, which is your feel good hormone that basically you're going to look for more of that. Right. So you're attracted to that kind of news. And then again, in behavior science, you have confirmation bias, which is your brain, the reticular activating system in your brain is going to look for whatever you're focusing on. So if your focus is negative, Mm -hmm. bad news, miserable, misinformation kind of things, your brain's going to say, oh, okay, you want that? Sure, let's find more. And and you will get more of that. And that simply confirms what you already believe. And so then you end up with polarized people that are coming up with utter nonsense that Uh, doesn't bear critical thinking, but then they're okay because there is no critical thinking going on. So meanwhile, our kids are growing up in this environment, trying to make sense of it. And the current generation, the upcoming um, Gen Alpha that were born 2010 onwards, these kids are not the same species as us. Mm -hmm. They are different because they are wired to the Internet from the get go. If you want to know how to use a smartphone, hand it to a two year old and they'll show you. Yes. You know, it's you want to go around the Internet and find all kinds of things that you didn't even know were a thing. Ask a five year old and they'll guide you. Yeah. You know, it's they are different to us. And they're rewired, aren't they? Totally. Totally rewired. Mm. If you do a brain scan, the brain looks different. It fires Mm. differently because their neural pathways are being built differently and they're being pruned differently. It's kind of a process that the growing brain goes through and it's shifted for these kids. So parents are trying to navigate this this world of misinformation and fast sound bites. Yes. And then you've got kids who are wired to the internet and the parents don't really recognize the kids, you know, with, with their complete wiring. Yeah. So how are you raising this little Martian that you're dealing with <laughs> and how are you going to help that Martian navigate this this weird, bizarre, completely, you know, new landscape. That you know nothing about. I mean, you know, you're you're navigating and can't make sense out of it. And so these kids are kind of creating a different pathway that is totally obscure to you. So, you know. And then there's an added complication, which is that we all tend to parent from our shoulder. And what I mean by that is you're looking behind at your parents to say, well, I didn't like this and I didn't like that and that was terrible, so I'm going to do this differently. Mm -hmm. And we're focusing behind on what our parents did and trying not to do that. And when you try not to do that, it's pretty inevitable that something that your mother said is going to come out of your mouth. <laughs> and yes. you're going to be so it's horrified. Scary. It's like, oh my God, I, I did not, my mother. <laughs> I did not just say that. But, the, but you did. And the reason you did is because you're looking backwards at yeah. what was and you're not looking forward at what is the vision? What would you like to be as a parent? Not what do you not want to be, but what would you like to be? And how is that going to help your child? to grow, to be a functional human being. Because another thing that's coming up with social media, particularly being so prevalent these days, is that people are very quick to blame. Oh, gosh, huge. Self-responsibility is becoming Mm. a dirty word. Yes. And you actually find 
the generations will blame each other for things. So you have the boomer generation yeah. saying it's all Gen X's fault. And then Gen X are like, look at these millennials. They can't even, you know, buy a house or whatever they're going to pick on. But instead of looking and saying, well, that's the generation I helped raise. So yeah. what did I what did I do that I could have done differently? Yeah. And how do I help now? You know, instead of looking for that responsibility and that action that you could take, there's a lot of finger pointing and, yeah, what a useless generation. Well, you know, if you've raised it, then maybe yeah. you want to own it. You know? I have a thing about finger pointing. Point your finger, there's three pointing back at you. Right? right. What did you have to do with it or what can you do about it? This reminds me, I think it was either an Outer Limits or a Twilight Zone, one of those. And it was um, everybody was literally had chips in their head and they didn't need to retain anything. Uh, they just asked the computer and there was this great big huge computer that had been running for 200 years. And there's this one guy with a chip didn't work. So he read and he wrote and he was considered the moron. Well, it turns out nobody was paying attention to the computer or maintaining it because they had relied on it for so long. The people that maintained it are gone and nobody bothered to learn how to do it. So one day the computer no longer works. Nobody can, you know, computer, tell me this, tell me that. They've now got to learn. He becomes the teacher. Right. right? A very valuable lesson, and the reason why it stayed with me for that is because I love technology. We're using this for technology. I'm even fascinated by AI. But if we don't bring the moral compass into it, if we don't look at the consequences of something, we're going to misuse it without even knowing. Social media, fantastic. We all use it. It's an algorithm. What you feed is what you're going to get back. Be mindful of what you're feeding. Be mindful. Your children are following you. They're going to see what you're doing. So are you, you know, pissing on somebody? Are you, oh, that person is, or look how fat that person is, or look at that and look at that. They're going to pay attention to that. That's in their brain and go, okay, that obviously is wrong. And so I either go to bash that person or I've got to be careful I don't become that person or I'm going to be ridiculed. So kids mimic. And that means they're going to mimic everything you do on social media, how you interact with other people, how you interact with yourself. Absolutely. And we've got to we've got to be pay attention to who we are, why we are, and what we're putting out. Because again, that is either they're going to avoid being anything like you, but end up with the same pattern, um, or they're going to become just like you, and you wonder why. <laughs> Right. And and the thing is, kids learn by seeing their parents model the behaviors. Yeah. If you think of any animal in the animal kingdom, how do they learn to fend for themselves and feed themselves? But by yes. watching the parent. Yes. We're the same. Kids yeah. learn that way. So it's not even, you know, if you talk a good story, but your actions <laughs> mm -hmm. are less than ideal, the child is going to learn your actions, not your words. They're going to see what you do. And when you see a lot of anxious children these days, mm. yeah, the pandemic has a chunk to do with that yeah. for sure. And we'll just leave that one sitting there as, yes, that had an impact. But the ongoing impact is a parent who has never learned how to cope with stress but has a dysfunctional response, you know, becoming bad tempered, kicking the cat, yelling, whatever they're doing, the child learns, okay, this is what I do when, when yes. stressed. This is how it should look. And they might even develop a few more behaviors on top of that. Yeah. But they're learning those behaviors from somewhere as a, an expression of functionality. Mm -hmm. Like I'm feeling stressed. 
I don't know how to deal with it. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to communicate that. And all behavior is communication. Yes. So there's no such thing, in my book anyway, there's no such thing as bad behavior. There is a behavior that is less helpful. Mm -hmm. There's a behavior that's downright problematic, but it's not bad behavior. It's telling you something really important. So the question becomes not, you know, what label does this kid have? If they have a label, okay, it really doesn't matter. The point is, what what are they telling you with that behavior? And if it's a means of communicating something that happens a lot, then we need to find a way of communicating that in a more functional way. And that's where applied behavior analysis comes in. If it's communicating distress in their environment, then this is kind of unusual here, but I'm going to say the adults need to listen. Yes. And kids typically aren't listened to. They are sort of marginalized from a very early stage. Oh, you don't mean that. Oh, no, that mm. didn't happen. Oh, this person didn't mean it that mm. way. Or one of the most heinous things that I think you and I probably grew up with is when a boy pulls your hair and they say, oh, that means he likes you. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. What are we setting up there? I know. Yeah. You know? And yes. when you've The got start a child, of abuse. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. You know, it's, it's okay for him to do that. Well, you're teaching both of them something yes. that's really dysfunctional. Yeah. And then might wonder about it later in life, like, why is she a victim? Mm. Why is he behaving that way? Yeah, yeah. Well, you kind of gave it to them both. Yes. yes. You know? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you, there's two things I'm going to address here. One, my 28-month-old, when he has a spasm and he gets frustrated, both my daughter and son-in-law, uh, because I've always talking about take a breath, take a breath, it, they, they have him take a breath. Now breathe, breathe, calm down, calm down. What's the problem? What are you trying to say? And he may not have the words, but he, when they're calming down, then he can reset himself and go about what he's doing without getting frustrated about it. So if they've taught him the art of breath, which I really like because it's just pause, calm down, let's address it. The other thing is I have a nine-year-old, um, um, I don't know what you call a, a step-granddaughter. I don't know if that's the actual terminology. Granddaughter. 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 Um, and, you know, they're, you know, her mum and, and my son, you know, they've been navigating their relationship and now and again, they both blow up and it bothers her, obviously. And so we've had conversations of what she can do about it, how she can mm. empower that, hear her voice said, and she's not comfortable in actually directly speaking to them. And I said, you're going to write to them, write to each of them and ask them to read it and think it over before opening up a conversation because half the time parents don't realize their interactions with each other are you know the kid picks up and the kid feels is it my fault did I do something wrong um can I do anything to do it you know to stop them doing this is this affecting my security and I'll I would say it does well you know in my marriage which was very tumultuous I was waiting for my younger daughter to be older before I left for for that security, because every time I tried to make a living, he would kibosh it so that um, I didn't have independence. And then one day my son came in, he was a teenager and my, um, I think she was 11 or 12 there at the time. And he said, this is ridiculous, it's time for a divorce. And I said, I'm waiting for Tasha to finish school. And she said, oh, bollocks with that. (laughs) We don't need that. It is time. And I said, but he's only hurting me, not you. No, mom. If he's hurting you, he's hurting us. 
we can't yeah, live with teaches. this anymore and that and that's something we don't realize right we think oh, it's just us that's suffering it's only me that's unhappy and we don't realize our unhappiness is hurting our children well when you've been a child in that situation i assure you you're very very cognizant of the impact that it has mm -hmm. and two parents that are fighting or worse being snidey to each other and and cutting to each other that has an impact on the child in in so many ways first of all that child is looking at two sets of 50 percent of their genetics mm -hmm. they come from this so that impacts them and then the thought of from a child is always going to be it's about me yes. because this is how we are wired. Mm -hmm. This is how in the days of saber toothed tigers, you would keep yourself safe is to be very self-aware mm -hmm. and everything is embodied in you. These are where your limitations come from in later life is your thought that I'm not good enough. If I was good enough, they wouldn't be fighting. Yes. If I was good enough, this wouldn't be happening. And then when that person grows older and they want to have their own relationships, they look for what they've seen. Yeah. It's not conscious, but yes. they will look for someone who represents mom, who represents mm -hmm. dad, and they'll go for that kind of relationship again and wonder why they're miserable. Yes. And, and it's because it's a learned behavior, actually. And, I, and I, I married my father. I married a gentleman uh, who's Chinese. His parents came from central China. Um, and I think he's totally different, different religion, different type of person, different everything, and met him in a different country. And I realized that although he was kind of my father on steroids, <laughs> the what my father used to do to my mother, this he was doing to me. And then it was, but is there something in me that's inviting this? Because that's what I'm subliminally expecting. Inviting is a strong word, but I would say recognizing. Mm -hmm. And when we recognize something, we feel more comfortable with it. Like yeah. if I did a test with you and I showed you half a dozen photos of people and three of them looked like somebody yeah. you, you kind of know, even if you didn't like that person that much, you would still be drawn to those pictures because they're more familiar. Yeah. And we do that. So when you've got somebody whose energy patterns mm -hmm. are very, you know, aggressive, for example, and we grew up around aggression, mm. that is immediately going to spark your recognition. I'm not going to say it's an invitation for sure, but it's going to sort of be on your radar. Yeah. And then you're more likely to sort of go and talk to that person and find things that you like about them because they have this, you know, maybe violent energy or something, but that's not everything that they present to you. Exactly. And so that person can be utterly charming. And we are very good at, as human beings. We are very good at downplaying the things that we don't like. And I know. Them. We can <laughs> yes. hide them from ourselves for a very long time until it becomes, shall we say, physically evident mm -hmm. that, no, this person actually is violent and they're not very pleasant. And, and you know, it's not a good person for you to be with. But you recognized things in that person. That's what drew you in the first place. It's not, oh, I'm looking for the same abuse my right. parents suffered, but it's I recognize this person. I recognize the, these traits. And so you go for that. Mm -hmm. That is a, a natural human behavior. Again, it's tied to survival centuries and centuries ago, millennia ago. You want to be with a familiar group yeah. in order to survive, to stay safe. Yes. So you're always going to be attracted to what you know. 
And that's, so that's why you have to kind of break that cycle. Yeah, I know. Right. That's, so yeah, you so one has to recognize that pattern and mm -hmm. realize that, okay, if I'm inviting this, there's something in the, inside of me that needs to change. Or, if, you know, if, if I'm drawn to it, there's something that needs to change in me. And that, that was actually kind of part of my thing with this is um, when I changed my energy, changed my signature, um, and rose up higher, it, he actually stated he had lost the control over me, right? Because I'd taken back my control because I changed my frequency that couldn't be tapped in. I had to, I will say I had to take the onus where maybe I gave him the boots to kick me with, but he's the ones that put them on and kicked as hard as he could. And I felt that when um, I had, and I think all victims do this, and I think this is why children repeat and marry the same thing and go through the whole cycle all over again, is we don't break the cycle because we don't recognize the cycle. And it's like I had to take onus to the fact that I had was drawn to this cycle. I didn't pay attention to the signs. I didn't get out when I should have. And because maybe I didn't feel worthy, I didn't feel valued, and I felt uh, that this was all that I was worth, right? And okay, I think so that's I was, I was heading for that yeah. because there is, as you're growing up, you imprint, you yeah. embed in you the lessons that you learn. So if somebody says to you, you know, you did that wrong, you never pay attention, you always do that thing wrong, the child is hearing, mm -hmm. I never do it right, I always yes. do it wrong, okay, and they they embody that and then make a decision about that mm -hmm. from a child's perspective mm -hmm. and this none of this is conscious this is subconscious yes. but this is the strongest program that's running yes. and you can't examine it knowingly yeah. but that whole unconscious energy is now saying okay so I always do things wrong that means I need to mess this up and I'm going to make mistakes here and I'm not even going to try that thing because I'll do that wrong. Of me. <laughs> and, and you live down to yeah. those beliefs that you have now taken on board. So coming from that place where your self-esteem is not where it needs to be, your self-efficacy, your sense of mm. is not where it needs to be because this is what you've learned. How can you possibly choose differently? Right. You know, it's right. not it's not even a, a victim per se, unless you assume that this is always your role. Right. But it, while you're in that state of these thing, these things are true about me that I learned when I was a child, and you just embody them and can't lose those, you can't let go of them, then you're yes, you're going to repeat those cycles. So it takes work, it takes awareness, and you need to do it for yourself and for your children so that they can then learn and you can be the barrier between mm. that endless nasty cycle and them having a better life in front of them. It's got nothing to do with whether they get a degree or not, right. or whether they have the right yes. job. It's got everything to do with can they be empowered to be the best version of themselves. That, for me, is success. For a child, I, you know, they're you can't do it from a bad place. No, no, and they've they've got to believe in themselves, and that kind of comes from you believing in them. Yes, and uh, you know, fortunately, I had children that were very open. We had lots of conversations, and yes, certain behaviors were were carried on in one of my children afterwards until you know it was the awareness that um, when things got to a certain level, that was his reaction because that's all he knew. He didn't have anybody else 
to guide him on that way. And that was a journey for him to change when he realized that. Um, but I think it's, we're so scared of looking less in our children's eyes or looking flawed or looking that we're not in control because if we're not in control, then where's their security? So we're so busy facading what the problem is because we want to keep, you know, everything calm for the kids that we are most certainly doing a disservice to our children because we're not giving them the empowerment that they need to face and make the right choices themselves because we're band-aiding it in a lot of ways, but, you, you you know. Well, if, you, if you're living a facade, then that's what you're teaching them is a exactly. facade. And, and that's very difficult for a child to work with. But I think for a lot of parents too, the, the issue is p- their peers. Mm-hmm. You, know, you guess. Yes. So I you mentioned earlier about me raising my children differently from my mm-hmm. peers. I did, and I heard about it every single day. Oh, yep. Yeah, I yeah. heard about this all the time. Yes. You know, this isn't how you're supposed to do it. You should do it here. They should be doing that. What, what kind about of mother this? are you? I Oh, I had criticism. <laughs> I had criticism constantly. Yes. And and I just, you know, well, I can't help it. I'm not doing what you do. It It doesn't work for my children. I'm doing it this way. And I did things very, very differently. And I'm really proud of the human beings that my two boys mm-hmm. are. Like they have grown into very fine young men and there's nothing about them that I'm not proud of. Right. So I think it turned out fine, yes. you know, but parents need to know that they don't have to do what their peers are telling them. You grew up that way, but you don't need to keep doing it. Yes. And ideally have a look at your peers' kids and see if they're really, are they all that in a bag of chips? Yes. Do something <laughs> different. I'm going to say mine did fine. Right. (laughs) I got ridiculed a lot. You know, I'd even have parents at the door screaming at me about my kids. And uh, um, I taught my kids that know your boundaries, know how, how, learn to listen to your gut, learn to listen to that intuition that says, no, the price is too high. No, I, I should not do this. It does not feel right. And through their teenage years, they pushed those boundaries and, you know, sometimes paid the price. And it was, you know, I would just think, you're an idiot. <laughs> you didn't pay attention to your gut, did you? No, mom. Are you going to next time? Yes, mom. Learning to tune in to themselves, listening to their own inner voice, because it's always about our authority voice on them and not their inner voice that we teach them to listen to. I got ridiculed a lot for that. But I also ended up with kids at my door coming to stay with me while something was going on in their family. And sometimes I could mediate and sometimes the family were just quite happy for me to have the kids because, mm-hmm. you know, they were at that stage. And um, and most of the time it's all the kids wanted was someone to hear them. They they were navigating. They didn't understand what was going on. They um didn't know what kind of future they were going to have. And all they wanted was somebody who would care, care enough to be there for them and never underestimate a hug, folks. Taking a child into your arms and giving them a hug, a true, honest, heart-to-heart hug can do wonders for a child, but letting them know you're there for them. And I think that's what's so missing in so many children. It's it's a basic human need yes. to be seen, heard, and recognized. Every single person on this planet wants that, whether yes. they admit it to themselves or others or not. 
and children are just more visible with their need. They haven't learned to hide it yet, mm-hmm. but everybody needs to be seen and heard and not ridiculed, yes. not sort of put down for what they've done or not done. Mistakes are the best place to learn. Mm-hmm. Honestly, they are the best place to learn. If you think back over your life and look at the things where you messed up, that will have been your best learning. Yeah. When things go right, that's like the coffee break of life is the way I look at that. It's if you're in a river and it's just nice and smooth, that's cool, but it would be awfully boring if it stayed that way because yeah. there's no challenge and yeah. you don't learn anything. Right. You just float around the corner of that river and suddenly there are rapids. Yes. Well, now you've got to pay attention and now you've got to navigate and now you're going to learn some things. You're going to learn what it's like when you tip. You're going to learn what it's like when you successfully navigate. And it's going to be different. That's where the gold is, is in the mistakes. So to either have the teen avoid the mistakes because you're telling them everything of what to do or ridicule them just when they're in their learning process. Both of those things handicap a child faster than anything from becoming the authentic adult that they could be. And really, there are no mistakes that are that bad in the moment that there can't be something learned from it. Right. But but if you cover it with ridicule and and with, you know, correction, well, you have to do this this time. You know, you have to do it my way. I'm I know better than you do that kind of thing. And I've I've heard parents use language like here. I know a better way. And and I'm just in so much conflict when I hear that sentence, because in one brief sentence, you're telling your child, you don't know anything. I yeah. know how to do it. You don't have any competency. Watch me. Yes. And, and that is so disempowering and so disheartening. And it's the antithesis of listening to your child. So if yeah, I could my, just my teenage son this. said, yeah, my teenage son said to me, Okay, mum, your food has got boring. I'm taking over the cooking. Go ahead. <laughs> cool. Go ahead. He now owns a restaurant. Go ahead. <laughs> right. right? I am tired of cooking. I'm tired of coming up with this you know, a meal every night. You want to take over? And, and at that point, pots and pans were to the ceiling. Then he learned to wash them as he went. And, you know, and, and things change. And when he cooks, that is his heart on the plate. Absolutely his love language whenever food is put in front of you and it uh, and he was a fabulous cook but he wanted to take over go and take over I'm quite happy to do so and he kind of kind of talks now like I never ever could cook for him and I said how come you reach six foot one and a half if I never gave you any good meals (laughs) so very easy to forget but I think one of the sad things is is that when our children are young we just shower them with such love and hugs and kisses and everything else. And as they get older, they've forgotten that. It's imprinted in their DNA somewhere, but it's not in their cognitive memory. And then they get obviously to teenage years and you're the worst thing to ever happen to them in their lives. And they've forgotten about everything else, but that's the peer pressure, isn't it? And what we're seeing today, which is absolutely horrific, and yet a lot of it kind of came out of COVID, is how many teens are committing murder for the fun of it that is a very very scary very dysfunctional situation that's and and you've got to look then at well what did they grow up with right 
and and what did they learn? Because the thing is, on social media in mm. particular, but not only, look at politicians too. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. They say things with no repercussions. They can say things that are blatant lies. Mm-hmm. This is politicians or social media. They they put stuff out there that you know is untrue, and Absolutely. there's no repercussion. And no the, accountability. And the lack of accountability is enormous because Absolutely. this is what kids are learning is, well, I can talk smack about anybody I like and they're not going to do anything because they can't find me. I'm the other side of a screen. Right. And, and it can get vicious. It can get really, really nasty. And then if that person responds, you know, if there's like cyberbullying, for example, and that person gets really upset, well, now you're getting a sense of power from yeah. behind your screen and keyboard without ever having to put yourself in harm's way or importantly make visual person-to-person contact with that individual that you are harassing so by the time you actually get to an in-person contact all bets are off as to how that's going to go down mm-hmm. you know that that is problematic in the extreme and another thing that might not be quite so obvious now but it will be it will be mark my words is gen alpha particularly these kids born since 2010, they are going to grow up. They're the most connected of generations like online. And they're still going to have the natural urges of wanting to meet someone and hook up. Right. But they don't know what to do then. Right. How do you, how do you relationship? Like, what does that mean? How do you do that thing? And so many of them won't have actually experienced that in their own homes that they don't have a model there. They're not seeing it online. They don't have a model there. They're not hearing it from the adults around them because of this crumbling sense of self-responsibility. And so they don't know what to do. And you are literally going to end up with a whole lot of teenage pregnancies because not because they don't care per se, but because they just don't know what to do. And if you've seen the movie Idiocracy, we are there. It is no, I haven't, but I'm going to write that well, down. Idiocracy is disturbingly present, and it's not supposed to be happening yet, but we're totally there, where people just don't know anymore. You know, but they don't speak. want to know. This is the frustrating thing. Is that well, it's easy not to. It, well, you know, I loved The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And he's gone now. I miss him because that's how I kind of got my news. I could only take it with a sense of humor because some of it was just, are you kidding me? Right. And he would have one of the guys go out to the Trump rallies and he would bring up absolute facts that they couldn't combat. And they would say, no, I don't believe that. That's not true. Or I don't care. And Mm. when you've got people who don't care whether it's true or not, because the lie is more comfortable for them. Right. And I think this is, this is that self-responsibility that I'm always talking about. You know, what we put out is what we're going to receive. And uh, we have got to be careful of what we buy. You know, we really are at a stage in our life, consumer beware, because absolutely everything at the present moment could be a con. And that means that you have got to do your due diligence to find out whether it's real or not. We've become complacent, we've become idiotic, and we've become very lazy in wanting to search what the real truth is. I call it headliners, when people will buy the headline and think they know everything and will not read the content or read it in the right context. 
Yes, I've I've actually experienced that where I've put something out on social media and the the article is there or it's even something I've done, like it's a yes. podcast I've done and I'll make a comment and the person jumps on the comment without yeah. the context yes. of what went with it. Right. And then they dispute it with me. And I'm like, well, that's you're right if that was in isolation, but it isn't. Here's the context. And you know, then they can maybe see that it's not what they thought, but they don't stop to think, I need to learn the rest of it. And then the other thing is, what are the sources? Yes. So I have four degrees. And the point to that being, it means I've done a lot of research yes. as in looking at other people's research, right? And one of the things I learned was that you need to have a look, the way I look at research, and this is helpful, I think, for anybody listening who wants to read research themselves, look at the abstract right at the beginning, look at the conclusion to see if it makes sense. You know, is it at least written in English? Yeah, does it make sense? And then look at who paid for yeah. the research. Yeah. Because if you are looking at an article that says dairy milk is good for you and it was paid for by the milk marketing board, then I really don't care who the scientist is. Yes. The point is they were paid by those people to find the outcome that they've given you. Faithful. And they will change the question. They yeah. will change the question to give you that answer until it fits. Yes. Because that's what they're being paid to do. And they too have to pay a mortgage. So it's not so much that I'm saying bad people, but be aware that what you're reading may come from a prejudiced place. It's not yes. obvious just because the study says this doesn't mean it's true. It means you need to look who wrote Deeper. it. Yes. Is, has it been verified by anybody yes. else? Or is this a standalone? You know, there was a, some time ago now, one study was produced that linked vaccines to autism. One. There were, I think, eight people that were cited in the, uh, as part of that study. And the doctor who produced that study lied and has since been struck off the register for exactly that study and that lie. He put links together from vaccines to autism that do not exist. Mm -hmm. But can we convince people? No, because it's gathered a momentum of its own now. It's, it's, it's become a yeah. movement yeah. and it's ludicrous. I mean, anybody listening that says, yeah, well, what about? Okay, let me, let me give you the ish on this and you can go look for yourself. When a child shows signs of autism it is usually a stage of development where these things can be seen these signs can be seen it just so happens that that stage of development coincides it correlates it doesn't causate with mm -hmm. vaccines vaccines occur at that stage of development because of the age of the child and where their immune system's at it does not cause autism that's one thing mm -hmm. and another thing is if you are the person who's saying I'm not going to vaccinate my child because it causes autism I would like you to consider your priorities there are you actually saying you'd rather risk your child dying from a preventable disease than from having a different way of thinking which is what autism is mm -hmm. and I will absolutely die on this hill this is not something that is, you know, an anathema. If we don't have people who think differently, you are going to get the same nonsense all the time. We need people who think differently. 
It's not an affliction. It's not something that needs to be cured. No. It's something that we ought to be able to work with. And if you're too narrow to do that, yeah. I recommend you look at broadening your horizons. Yes. And unfortunately, that is the key. <laughs> when people can get so stirred up and get onto the hysteria bandwagon of a mistruth, one of the problems is they bought into the mistruth as a fact, and then the fact was proven wrong, but they don't want to own the fact that they have been conned and they rather stay with the lie because go, they're going to lose face. The other thing is they love the hysteria. They love the, yeah, what? Do you know? And it just builds them right up into a high energy, which actually takes more energy from you in every way than it does to actually do your due diligence and inquire and be educated. It, 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 that hysteria is the mob mentality, right? It and it, it really is fed by, you know, all these dopamine hits yes. in the brain and, and the adrenaline. You know, these are all the things that get you going. And being a calm sort of processing kind of person who's going to think about things from different perspectives you know what different perspectives but yes. maybe be objective about something that's not sexy your brain's not going to light up on that your child might be better off but it's you know if if that's the denominator that you're mm. operating from then it's problematic but so I, why I have... are we seeking dopamine so much uh, why are we looking for that that well, lift in dopamine why what did we used to get it in a different way i mean what's yeah. going on yeah i mean dopamine comes from all kinds of things it, it's a reward for the brain right it's a little hit of yeah sugar for the brain <laughs> so it's a little you did a good job so for example if you're a person who likes to have to-do lists many mm -hmm. people do and you might even write on the top something that you've already done just so you can cross it off well, the reason you do that is because every time you cross off something from your to-do list, your brain says, yay, and gets a well little done. hit of dopamine. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it comes from a variety of sources. And just like your sugar, the mm. question is, are you choosing a high-quality source yes. or are you going for the over-processed crap? Right. And that will make a difference to how that operates for you. You know, if you're getting the dopamine hits from sort of high fructose corn syrup type stuff, which is the, whoa, whoa, we're all going to jump up and, you know, yell now, then, okay, that has you working on a pretty, you know, low vibration, honestly. Mm. If you're getting your sugar from the fruit that it's natural to and you're having the whole fruit, then you're getting a very different response a different vibration for that because it contains much more of what you need yes. it's got the vitamins and minerals it's got all the phytonutrients it's got the things in it that your high fructose corn syrup created in a laboratory does not have so the the dopamine reward system has always been there absolutely it's one of the ways we sort of direct ourselves to the things we want and away from the things we don't the problem comes in when you get low quality stuff that hits the same spot. And that would be a high fructose corn syrup version of social media nonsense yes. and misinformation and so on. And of course, what we see nowadays, and, and remember it was years ago, many years ago, maybe 2002 or three, um, I went to this 
a networking thing. Somebody gave me this ticket to go and it was started on a Friday. It was early Saturday morning, eight until 10. And then again, Sunday finished at six. So there was no time to ever digest what was being said or what was being done. And uh, people were running on exhaustion, but uh, but they were running on the sugar high, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the adrenaline. And all it was to do was to steer people into signing up for these big, huge programs at a great expense because it was all right. about that bottom line. And yet people would go back to that same thing over and over again. And they weren't going for the information. They weren't going for the education. They weren't going for it to apply to themselves. They were going constantly for that sugar high. I personally found it draining. I found that, yeah. you know, what have I processed? Because all it is is one thing on top of the other, gathering more and more momentum. And it's like, Phew. and other people go, yay. You know, uh-huh. and it's like, no, I, I'm I'm depleted here and I'm not sure what I got out of it. So one of the things actually you've just described um, a, a process in behavior analysis called behavioral momentum. And it's it's an interesting feature. We all use it and you can use it to help your child move toward behaviors that you want them to learn. And the way behavioral momentum works is you have an easy task and it's successful. Yay, brain gets dopamine. Another easy task, successful. Yay, brain. And you do that like three, four, five times. And so, and you do it in quick succession. So for a kid, you know, touch your head, touch your shoulders, touch your knees, touch your toes, tie your shoelaces. And the tie your shoelaces is the thing they don't particularly want to do, but behavioral momentum, being all that dopamine going boom, 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 because they did all the things right, will carry them into that behavior before they know they're doing it. Right. When you use it for a manipulation mm-hmm. in the marketing type way, you give the dopamine hits, boom, 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 boom. And then you throw the big cell in yes. to have that person who's carried on an emotional high, mm-hmm. and, you know, and they are just full of adrenaline, dopamine and all the yay. And yes, of course, they're going to jump and say, yeah, absolutely. I want in. Unless there's someone who doesn't quite get their dopamine triggered that way. Mm. I am one of those people. You seem to be one of those. No, I find it way too much. (laughs) But it works on enough people that it is a successful strategy. And those are the people who will later get buyer's remorse. Mm -hmm. And they'll be, you know, waking up in the morning nervous and sort of, oh, no, what did I do? I just went and paid how much for that? What am I doing? You know, and and now they have the remorse at their leisure, but they already signed something to say there's no refund. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, now, now what have you done? And now they're uh, resentful and they're angry and yeah. they feel shame and they feel this and they feel that. And how does that manifest? And what they don't do quite often, if they don't know what I've just explained to you, they don't learn the lesson. No. Because they don't know how they got there. Right. And so the next person who does the whole shiny object, one, two, three, four, five, and then throws the big thing at them, will hook them again. Yes. Because they didn't know what to look for the time before. And they just like why, the high. But they don't know why. Right. They don't know how it's being built up consciously mm. by the people who are doing the building. They know how to manipulate that. And and it's... It's amazing what you can do with behavioral science. Yes. Like, let me give you another example that I just, I, I love this one and I hate this one all at the same time because it's so powerful. 
the most potent reinforcement you will ever come across. And I mean reinforcement, not reward. Reinforcement is something that will make sure that behavior keeps happening. Reward is an exchange. You do this, I'll give you that. It's a different thing. So reinforcement, if you think of a gambler sitting in a casino and they are pressing the button, I mean, you don't even get to pull a lever now. No. You press the button for the slot machine and they can sit there in a room with no windows with way too many people in and far too much noise and they can sit there for hours just pressing this button and they keep feeding money in. Now, why are they doing Robotically. (laughs) And it is called that there is a technique here that the casinos know all about. And in behavior analysis, it's called indiscriminable contingencies. It's one of my favorite words because it kind of plays in the mouth. Indiscriminable contingencies. And what that means in English is you know that the reinforcer is coming, the thing that you really want. It needs to be a high quality, right? Mm -hmm. Something you, you would work for. And you know it's coming, but you don't know how much and you don't know when. And that is all it takes for you to sit there for hours. So you could be sitting there for 10 minutes and suddenly you'll get $2 back. Ooh, I know there's a big payout coming. So you keep going, you keep going. And maybe you get $100. I'm on a roll. And then later, you know, you can be sitting there for four hours and you might get one more dollar. Well, I've got to keep going now because by the end of the day, I'm going to be on a winning streak. Yes. And the brain will give you what you need to be able to sit there and keep going for that reinforcer. And it is the strongest form of reinforcement out there. And it's that's, that's, would you call it actually addiction? You're addicted to the reward all the time? Oh, that is a difficult one. There is gambling addiction, mm-hmm. absolutely. But the chances are there are other elements involved. Mm-hmm. If you are hooked into that machine because of, you know, you really want that payout, that in itself is not an addiction. The question is, do you keep coming back for more? Right. And is that all you think about? Yes. There are other factors involved. Mm-hmm. But that is a way to hook someone on a certain behavior and, and have them repeat that behavior. So in behavior analysis, you can use it to teach somebody a good behavior, that you know, a desirable behavior. But it can be misused as well, as I've just explained. It can be used by and the casinos even have big signs up telling you the house always wins yes they will tell you that they're they're not hiding it no but the indiscriminable contingencies are so strong that it will overcome anything to keep you sitting in that seat well it's it's the same with people with relationships the next one will be better but you haven't changed your vibration, your energy, your awareness, your pattern, but the next one will love me better. The next one will love me better. And all they're doing is repeating in a different package all the time. And and the question there would be in what way and why, what are you looking for that's different? What's your goal? What's your aim? And how are you showing up? You know, there are all these questions because if you show up in a certain way, you're likely to bring that behavior from the other person. You know, if I came to you and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I really messed up. I was late. I did this, this, this. Oh, I'm really sorry. Then chances are you're going to look at me and say, well, do better next time. Like, for goodness sakes, what's happening with you? Aren't you a professional? You know, because that's the response to that kind of demeanor. Now, if I came in and said, hey, 
I was a couple of minutes late. Thank you so much for waiting. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate your patience. Yes. Now you're going to be, oh, that's fine. Yes. It's not a big deal. Right. And, and you're not going to question my professionalism at all mm -hmm. because I just thanked you for being patient and waiting for me. Yeah. So, and and for anybody listening, I wasn't late. But <laughs> I don't want to qualify no. that. But, but, you know, that, that's the kind of interaction. So how are you showing up? And I once worked with someone who she was a really good worker. She worked in with children with autism, funnily enough, and she would go to the people's homes. And she would often worry about being late. And so she'd message the parent and say, look, I might be a couple of minutes late. I'm sucking traffic, but I'm trying to get there. And she would send this message so frequently that the parents came to the company and said, look, can you do something about this? She's always late. But when you look at the system she used to clock in, she was never late. She actually wasn't late, but uh, the parents perceived her as being right, late. Because she, she was, was always talking about it. Right, exactly. Yes. And she would, you know, she would stress over it and say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, am I late? Oh, I'm not. Oh, good. But the parent, meanwhile. I'm already programmed to believe she's late. Yes. I've <laughs> got this message that here she's again, she's late and she's not. She's probably right. even early. And, and we had to sort of say to her, look, this is what's happening. You keep telling the parent that you're going to be late or that you're worried you're going to be late. And so even though you're not, they think you are. Stop doing it. Yes. <laughs> you, don't <laughs> you don't send those messages. Type it if you must and then erase it. Don't send it. Yeah. And, and everything calmed way down and the parent no longer thought that right. this person was always late. Now, that was pretty straightforward and simple, right? But how you show up mm -hmm. and how you present yourself is so much of what you get back that from anybody, from any situation, you know, if you come across as needy, then people don't like needy. Right. That, that's very, you know, mm, that that's not an energy that anybody wants around right. them. So they're going to push you away, which makes you more needy, mm -hmm. <laughs> which makes them push you away, yes. makes you, more needy, you know, and that is a self-reinforcing situation. So, you know, th those things, the first question to ask, I think, at any time, whether you're a parent, whether you're a teen, whether you're a parent of teens, is how am I showing up? What am I bringing to the party? Not not from a blame perspective, right? right? If, I could take one thing, if I could take one thing off this planet, it would be blame. It's the most disempowering thing right. ever. You can't take action. From blame and shame. Blame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. They, they are destructive. They're unhelpful. But just from a place of awareness, curiosity, you know, for, in the interest of improving yeah. your interactions, how am I showing up? What message am I giving? How do I do that differently? Yeah. So this this woman could have stuck to, well, no, I need to send those messages so that the parents are aware. She could have done that and she probably would have been removed from the case eventually mm -hmm. because the parents were complaining. Right. And, and that would have been completely unnecessary. Right. Or she could recognize, okay, you've pointed this out. This is a behavior I'm doing. I need to not do that. And then they'll show up differently yes. and, and I'll be able to do my job. Now, yeah. I have a question for you. Mm, go for it. You have a parent, man or woman, um, going through something, facing whatever it is they're facing in life. And it's changing their whole perception or they're trying to be strong, but they're feeling weak. Kids pick this up in some form or other. 
how honest should you be with that child? Mom or dad is going through something right now. This isn't on you, um, but I'm just asking you to be patient with me right now. Is that a good thing to do or should you try and hide everything from the child? Great question. And the answer is, of course, it depends because that's always the answer. Um, it depends on the age of the child as to how much you're going to tell them. Yes. So one thing I would love to point out, so thank you for giving me the opportunity, is that parents really should not use the teenager or the preteen as a buddy, as someone to lean on, as someone to tell their woes to. Your child might seem very mature, but they are not ready to handle your crap. Right. So don't give it to them. That's that's not a thing. Don't give it to them. But can you say, I'm having a tough time right now. I'm going through some things at work and I'm not happy about it. I know you can tell, but it's it's not about you. It's work and I'm just processing. So if you have any questions, just let me know and I'll do the best I can to answer you. Right. And that's as honest as you need to be. You don't need to go into the detail. Please don't go into the detail with your child. But they can know that something's going on because, as you just said, they'll be aware of it whether you oh, tell yeah. them. They'll not. feel it. Mm -hmm. So so they'll be aware of it and the child will make it about themselves if you don't tell them otherwise because right. that's how we're wired. Right. It's nothing exactly. wrong with the child. But what so, if the child is witnessing something between husband and wife? And they know that there's something and they do choose to intervene, talking teenagers here, obviously, at this stage. Um, you know, how open and honest are you with them at that stage? If you're at that stage where your teenager feels the need to intervene, then your teen already knows what's going on. And you really need to evaluate getting the hell out of there yeah. and showing your teen a different life. Because staying together at that point helps mm. no one. It hinders everyone. Yes. And the only honest thing you can do is say, you know, I don't know how we ended up in this position. Here we are. We're going to work our way out of this. Yeah. And you find a way to get out of that. Now, if, if the situation is a violent one, the less said, the better. But um, the faster you get out, the better. Yes. That is absolutely crucial. There's, there can be no question on this. It's not easy. Of course not. You wouldn't be in that position if it was. But you have to do that for yourself and also for your children because they are feeling it even yeah. more than you do in a way. You might get the physical blows, but they feel the pain of that long after. Right, yes. And that's something so, that I became aware of when they said time for a divorce. And it was yeah. interesting because I'm, I'm, you know, in the process of finishing up my, my memoir, my journey of life, and my daughter, one daughter read it and she said, mom, you've been way too kind to dad, been way too kind. And I said, look, I'm not here bashing. Plus anybody that's done me wrong is not going to be named. I'm naming the people that supported me. Um, but it's like, I'm not there anymore. You know, this is my journey from where I've come from, from where I am now. No, mom, you've got to put in more. I know what he did. Uh, I know the pain. And if you really wanted more in there, that's for her to write. Yes, yes. But you see, that's that's her choice. So it's for her to do her memoir that way. Mm -hmm. She can put in what she remembers. Yes. But for example, I I do tend to feel that I, I've had a lot of stuff in my life that has not been good. I had a rough childhood, but I don't look back at that and yes. point fingers and blame. Right. Because there's no point. No. People don't intentionally make bad decisions. 
They don't sit down and say, I am going to make a decision that sucks so badly, people are going to be talking about this for the next 30 years. Nobody sits down and does that. They make the decision that they think is correct, whether it's highest and best or not is, is a different thing, but they think it's the correct decision given everything they know in that time. Now, if you got in the way of that and that wasn't pretty, then yes, that's an awful thing and you have your processing to do, but that person wasn't really aiming for you as such. You were in that role. You were in that place. And so the reason I'm saying this is not so much, you know, don't blame that person, poor them. It's more a case of, look, this was your life's journey and I don't know why the hell you did those things, but I'm going to assume that that was indicative of the space you were in. You're in a bad place to do those things. You don't do those things from a good place. So that is your journey. I leave you with it. I give it to you. I'm not carrying it with me anymore. It's not my monkey. It's not on my back. I'm going to put that sucker down and leave it with the person who had it. And they, they can do their own resolving. I don't need to live there anymore. I don't need to be in that space. And I'm not carrying it like a badge or a coal or any of those things. It's like that was then. It made me, I'm a very strong child advocate. I have a lot to say on the subject of parenting and behavior in general. And I do these things because I came from that space. Exactly. I wouldn't have learned it otherwise. Well, that that, that is 99.9 99.9 of the people I interview, you know, the where they are now and what they're doing is because from where they have come from and what they've learned along the way. And like some of the stories I've heard of parental abuse at the highest, like mm-hmm. playing Russian roulette with the kids, who are we going to kill first? Or uh, rape and abuse from grandfather, father, mother knowing, nobody ever defending. Yeah. These things are never, ever, ever should happen to a child. But because they chose to take that path of healing, you know, discover the courage, their strength, their abilities, and who they are today. They can talk about what happened to them, and there's no longer any pain associated with it. They're talking about it now as be aware, and this is what you do in this situation. Right, because that's taking what you've had and turning it into something useful, which really, what else are you going to do? Why would you want to stay there? In that pain and suffering. You know, I I have worked with someone who came in carrying this massive burden of all these things that had ever happened to them. And I was like, well, are you ready to put any of that down? Because seriously, I can't work on you under all this baggage. Right. You've got to put this stuff down. It doesn't have to keep hurting you. Yeah. And if you keep revisiting those old things and keep revisiting what was done, then you keep hurting yourself. Nobody else is getting hurt. No. You know, you've chosen, you've that... chosen to give your power away instead of taking it back. And and you keep beating yourself. You know, it's like mm. that Buddhist saying of it's like holding a, a burning coal and expecting the other person to be on fire. Right. It's not happening. The no. only person that's suffering here is you. So why would you choose that for yourself? Right. Why would you choose to pass that on to your kids? Yes, exactly. So if, if you can put that down and give it back to the person who had it in the first place and just acknowledge, you must have been in a hell of a mess to do that. That's you. You're over there. I'm Door here. closed, locked. I'm moving on. And and not even, you know, a fearful thing, but just a yeah. case of recognition that 
wow, that was not okay. You were a hot mess and and I'm not going to be there with you. I'm moving on. I'm doing my thing now. What can I do to help other people not be there? And, you know, and, and to understand you're going to have scars from certain things in life. But, you know, those are scars of things that have gone by. Don't try and erase the scars. You know, they're there. Uh, they're going to be triggers now and again, recognize them for what they are. You know, if they're a trigger, what situation are you in at the present moment that's reminding you of that? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Is it something you're repeating or is it something you need to remove yourself from? Or was it just a kind of a momentary memory? Pause and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Right. But it doesn't and mean you're relivering is, it. And if it's a person that's triggering you, and this is the interesting part mm. that's easier said than done, as most things are, but if there's a person who really winds you up, just looking at them or hearing them yeah. or you know thinking about them really annoys you, great. Sit down and consider why. Yes. What is it about that person that's sparking something in you? Because it's very often a recognition mm-hmm. that is causing that spark. So is that something you'd like to work on? Not necessarily with them, but if you're being triggered, something in you needs a little love and attention, needs a little work. So what is that thing? And it can be so hard to find initially because you're so triggered by this other person, really irritating, (laughs) that breathe too loud or whatever it is they're doing. But, you know, what what is there? Because just like the rapids in the river, that is the place where the gold is. That's where you learn the stuff that you don't yet know. And that's what we're talking about. It can also sometimes be like a mosquito, just irritating. Right. It's, you know, yeah. and it's, it's not, not really triggering. It's not really triggering. It's just irritating. Oh, God, you know. Yeah, that's the reason why I left that boyfriend. <laughs> and then move on. You know, you're not revisiting and it's not necessarily a trigger. It's a reminder. You know, OK, it's a reminder of something that irritated you. Acknowledge it. Let it go. Move on. Please don't take it with you. Right. And, and if there is something in you that responds to that in mm. some way or is created by that then have a look at it and yeah. is that something you can work on because we're all here as a work in progress nobody's yes. perfect right and to the day we die folks it's it's, it's yeah. constant yeah. <laughs> yeah. well ideally ideally uh-huh. constant. yes because with the people who don't try and learn who don't try and change those are the ones who are basically wasting their time being here on the planet because they're not doing anything with the opportunity you're not moving forward and that's that's a tragedy, you know, that's so sad. There's nothing wrong with making a mistake. There's nothing bad about you making a mistake. It means you've done something. It means you've tried something. And one of the things that I've learned in life is that people who criticize you are never the people in front of you. No. Always the people who haven't done what you've done yet. They're like the little chihuahuas yeah. at the heels. You know, they're, they're like nipping at you. <laughs> exactly. They, they're yappers nipping at your heels. But they haven't done what you've done and they haven't been as successful as you've been. They're not the people in front of you. So and, you and really if somebody need to is, listen to them. Exactly. And if somebody is constantly bringing up your faults, you're this or you're that, it is not you that they are looking at. It's something in themselves that they still have to address that you're Ooh. reminding them of. So don't take it on. Don't take it on as an attack. Don't take it personally. Very often it's stuff that they're in the process of, but you're a reminder of or a reflection of. Well, he, here's the interesting thing about when people tell you things about you. What they're doing, and it's fascinating if you can be objective, mm. which 
you know, I've worked on for a lot of years, so I can, I can generally be pretty objective. And I'm going to sit back and look and say, wow, you are telling me some really interesting things about you. I'm learning about your perspective on life because all those shoulds and, you know, mm. don't shoot on me. All those shoulds are things that that person perceives yes. as being in their environment, their mm. field. Mm-hmm. It's their sort of perspective of how things ought to be. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with you. Exactly. You know, I could sit here and say, you know, Sarah, I think you should dye your hair black. It would look amazing. Does that actually have anything to do with you? No. Maybe, maybe I have an inner goth. Maybe yeah. <laughs> I'm like black. You have no way of knowing. And don't but let black. it influence you. Go, oh no, I've got to go out and dye my hair black in order to reach approval. No. Right. <laughs> and and then the chances are, here's the irony. Chances are the person who you're trying to get the approval from won't give it to you because you can't be them. Yes. And they're talking about themselves. They're not talking about you. Right. So it sounds like it's you, but it isn't. It's no. their perspective. So, you know, if you if you're someone whose parents said, look, you're a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a failure, you know, and there are those parents out there. So if you have one of those parents, that's what they grew up with, that's their perspective, that's their value system. It's got squat to do with you. Exactly. If you have the heart of an artist, go be an artist exactly because none of that story is yours it's theirs give it give it back to them it's not yours you don't you know that people will say things that are unkind and at the time oof, that hurt right but it's don't um don't stay there you know it's them that's saying it it's them that's saying that that it's a part of them um, this stupid thing down here keeps changing. <laughs> so, I, I, so, I know it's, it's weird. Well, it's um, one of those interesting things where, again, you can look at the person and say either out loud, if you if you yeah. want to, or to yourself, where are you at that you wanted to say that? Like, yeah. are you having a bad day? What? Do you need some help with something? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I get curious about that person. If they're trying to hurt me for some reason, why? What, what? What's your problem? What's upset you? Yes. Why are you coming at me? You know, I don't accept it. I'm not listening to you. It's twaddle. So don't bother. But you know, like, where are you at? And and the very act of being curious about that person yeah. and it takes that energy and sends it right back to where it belongs. And and then you're in a position of, I hear that you are really in a negative space right now. What's going on? Yeah. Did you sleep okay? Like, yeah. is somebody giving you a hard time? How's your home life? You know, like what's yeah. happening? Because what they're giving you is more of them. They're not giving you you. Yeah. You didn't earn that. You didn't deserve that. You certainly don't have to accept that. It's theirs. How do we teach children to recognize that and not take it on personally? And how do we empower them to say something that isn't going to be perceived as cheeky or rude or intrusive, but empowers the child, gives them the voice? Beautiful question. Thank you. I like that one. I'm actually working with the family with that right now. And what they do with their seven-year-old is say, you know, sometimes people say things and it's because they're not in a happy place, but let's look at, you know, what happened or what do you think they might be feeling about that? And then also let them know that sometimes you just don't know, but if it's not helpful, you don't have to accept it. Mm -hmm. Because a child never needs to accept negativity 
from the adults around them. There is no purpose to it. Mm -hmm. And it can actually derail an entire life. Yes. You know, one example I would like to give of, of something that could have altered the trajectory of my older son's life dramatically was when he was at school, his teacher came to me one day and said, you know, he he's terrible at French. He's not learning French properly. And he was in Canada, so he kind of needed it. And, and, you know, she said, he, just put him in a different stream. He's no good at languages. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a lot. That's very condemning. And I decided, you know, I was upset, but I decided, okay, I'm just going to hold that for a while. I'm, I'm not using it. I'm going to hold that yeah. for a while. As it happened, we moved country and we moved to Singapore. And the first thing that happened was he had to learn Mandarin. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be fun. Let's, let's see what happens with this teacher's words in my ear. Well, who do you think was a rock star at learning Mandarin? Within three months, this kid was doing, he was on the quiz team answering questions in Mandarin. He was dreaming in Mandarin. He was telling jokes to Chinese kids in Mandarin and having them laugh. Like, he mastered it. And now, with me having not told him the story from his teacher, and now he speaks seven languages beautifully and he's a linguist. He's, <laughs> he has his PhD in linguistics. You know, this teacher learned her French online. Right. My son has a PhD in linguistics. So I'm, I'm going to say who's good at languages and who isn't. So sometimes an adult will tell you a thing and it's not about your kid. What she was actually telling me was she couldn't teach French to save her life. Right, exactly. And she's blaming the kid, which is what happens a lot, right? It can't possibly be my inability to teach this. It must be his inability to learn. Not true. He speaks French fluently now and all the time. Yes. I I mean, I I grew up with that because I missed a lot of schooling due to my illness. And so I would have always... You know, you low grades, you're never going to amount to anything. I got all of that. But I live with a 90-year-old who is an amazing woman, still drives, still cooks, vibrant woman. Yes, short-term memory loss, but everything else is still very, very productive. And But she is still hurt by some of the things that happened in her life. Now, she had lost her twin sister, and within a few weeks, she ended up with polio and four years in hospital uh, operations and everything else. So when she went back to school, and they didn't really teach school in hospital, when she went back to school, they put her in at the level that her age was at, but she'd missed so much. And the math teacher put an equation on the board and said, solve it. And she said, I don't know how. Are you an idiot or something? Right. Right. She remembers that. She's 90. That was when she was 10 or 11. She remembers that. And it stayed with her all her life. And Absolutely. She does. told her father and her father came in and gave what's it to the, to the teacher because he was that kind of dad. But for her, it was always feeling wounded that she was less than when she felt. But I, you haven't taught me. Mm-hmm. Why would I know? Now, you know, it's funny you say that because <clears> I was recently just couple of months ago at an event where this woman was standing next to me we got chatting and she told me that she works at the head start program you know with little kids and then as she's just chatting she said to me and and you know some of these kids this is in Wisconsin some of these kids don't even know that chocolate milk doesn't come from brown cows you know they don't even know what cows look like how ridiculous is that and then she's laughing and I said well 
Did you and the teacher maybe set up a field trip to take them to a farm? Did you show them pictures of cows? Did you explain it to them? This is an opportunity for you to teach. Yes. But And she just looked at me like I'd grown a second head and it was kind of <laughs> ugly, you know? And what she was doing and the impression she gave me, because she was telling me, you know, she conversed with this teacher about it and, and they both were like, oh, my God, you know, kids these days, they don't know anything. Well, Why you're don't they the know teacher. Anything? Yeah. <laughs> you're the teacher. So you might want to sit down and have a com, you know, have a contemplation yeah. about that. But the the go-to of ridiculing the child yes. Yes. start program. Yeah. And not knowing what a cow looked like. Well, do they have an adult in their life that might want to show them? Yeah. You know, it, it just it blew my mind that this woman was in this position and and she was an older woman. You know, like, it's not like she was straight out of school and didn't learn anything herself. She'd been around the block a few times. So you would think she would know that if a child doesn't know what a cow looks like, you might want to teach them. Exactly. You know, and 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 yet she went to ridicule instead. And I thought, so, that I mean, I mean. A, you're taking a beautiful sponge and you're filling it with information. And if you're already ridiculing it, you know, how is that not going to be feeling. absorbed? But, you know, then what happens if the child is on the autism spectrum or on the Down syndrome spectrum or just simply has some learning um I call it disabledness rather than disabilities that just learns in a different way. Are you going to ridicule all of those children all along because they're not learning the way you're teaching? Well, unfortunately, yes, that happens all the time. And it is a very, very large problem because these kids are getting poor self-esteem, but also they're learning not to ask questions, They're learning not to show that they don't know anything. And where do our ignorant adults come from? But those kind of children, they were raised that way. If you let me know that you don't know what a brown cow looks like or you you think chocolate milk comes from a brown cow, then I'm going to ridicule you. You sure as hell not going to tell me anything else. Right? Exactly. Like you, you are not going to question or no. be adventurous in your Never learning. put your hand up because you don't want to be ridiculed not. again. Yeah. Of course not. And, you know, uh, talking with a teacher one time, uh, in fact, I was doing a podcast with her and she said, you know, when I, I say to the children, um, do you have any questions? They never have any questions. And I said, well, change your question. Yeah. Ask them, what questions do you have for me? And then look expectantly and you will find you'll get half a dozen hands going up yeah. because you pre-framed what questions do you have for me with the assumption that there are questions. Whereas if you say, do you have questions? You are suggesting that there shouldn't be any. That's mm. the unspoken context of those two phrases all you got to do is tweak it a little bit and be open what questions do you have for me it's just like the I'm so sorry I'm always late to thank you for your patience I I really appreciate you waiting for me right those are two very different energies and the trajectories from there are hugely different one opens up possibilities and says you know, it's okay for me to ask questions and learn. And the other one says, just get through it. Just sit here and shut up and get through it. Yeah. You know, I'll figure it out later. And and you're not going to ask questions. That is a downhill slope and it's not pretty at the end. No. And, and you know, I remember a, um, 
a teacher I had, she taught vocational guidance and she had been a teacher's pet. She'd gone to college and been a pet there and come back into the same school that she was the teacher's pet. And she was young and it was new. And I had disagreed with what she had said because what she was talking about, which I don't even remember now, uh, I had just gone through that experience two days before. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm not sure about that because I went through this experience. Da, da, da. No, that's not right. And I said, no, I went through this experience. Do not argue with me. And she sent me to the principal. Uh-huh. Uh, and then later the, <clears throat> she came along and the principal knew me by now. And she came along and, uh, and she stated her case and I stated my case. And the principal turned around to me and said, you don't have to be in her class anymore. And the principal, the teacher looked and said, well, aren't you going to reprimand her? No, I'm not. You did not honor her experience. Well, why did you, well, why did you do that? Because I'm the teacher and I know best. Right. Right. And, uh, and so she said, you don't have to be her, uh, go in her class anymore. And what class would you get? And I had an art class with a teacher where we always ended up conversing. Uh-huh. Because that's how I learned through, through conversation, music teacher. But I also was a channeler of wisdom, not anything I knew anything about, where I could counsel them without knowing I was counseling them. Right. And so I, I learned better and I did more there. But it was very, very interesting that the principal actually stood up for me. Thank you. That's um, quite rare. But very rare. Um, but I also, on the other hand, that she and I've I've fought with teachers with my own kids who are innovative, who stand up for other people, who would get into trouble. And my son got into trouble because he was blamed for something that another kid did. And she, when he questioned it and said, no, I didn't do that. Yes, you did. The, be quiet, whatever. And he challenged it. You go to the principal, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it, he said, look, if I've done something, I'll take the blame for it. But I'm not going to take the blame for something I didn't do. We ended up kind of going to what I call a trial, you know, with the school board and everything else, stated our case. That teacher stood by what she said. And they said, look, your son's not going to get any justice here. We're going to move into another school with a clean slate. Okay. Okay. But, but you know, but what does that say? No accountability uh-huh. to the teacher. No, no, like, but you did wrong. It was proven the other kid did it. Where's your apology for the kid? None of that. Right. And that's and that is a fundamental problem where yes. we put kids' needs and kids' autonomy, their respect, all those things low on the list. Yes. The adult who should be able to handle themselves by now right. doesn't have to. You know, this is where people-pleasing starts with little yeah. kids too. And I have a very big thing about that, as you can probably imagine. But you know, with a little child, I've, I've seen it at airports, for example, you know, grandma wants to say goodbye and the kid's playing and, yeah. and the child says, no, 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 no. And yeah, but grandma wants a hug. No, 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 no. Now, ideally at that time, you just say, well, can you just wave bye? You know, and grandma accepts yeah. waving bye. And, and that's cool. But picking the child up and kind of saying, you have to hug grandma. Now you're teaching that child that, first of all, what they want is unimportant. Their body is not theirs to determine what Mm -hmm. happens to it. And they, the young child of about, you know, one and a half or two or something, have to give in to the adult who can't accept no. 
there's that, that, all of that yeah. is problematic and you see it every winter when it comes to santa claus yes. how many kids are screaming on santa's lap well you're probably telling them not to go off with strangers <laughs> don't accept candy and then you say go sit on this freaky white dude's lap yeah and he's going to whisper things to you through his beard <laughs> And you're supposed to be okay with this. Exactly. Now, I don't know, but I think, you know, let's not worry about drag queens reading to children. Let's <laughs> worry about men in red suits with big beards whispering to little kids on their lap. Exactly. Because that's more of a problem, frankly. <laughs> and there are more kids that have been scarred by that experience yeah. than than ever from listening to a drag queen reading a book. Right. So, exactly. you know, I think the priorities have gone a little askew there. Yeah, I, I was um, um, a president of this uh, play group and it was pre-going to um, uh, kindergarten. And um, there was a wonderful woman called Med Heckling and she taught um, sex education to children in a way of them understanding their, you know, their bodies and that their bodies were their own and that nobody had a right to, to touch them. And I remember a woman just ripping up one side and down the other. What am I doing? Contaminating my these children. How dare I? And just going off. And then this woman came and she talked about this is your penis. This is your vagina, calling them exactly what they are, educating it and that nobody can touch it that you don't want them to touch it's your body and if anybody tells you to keep a secret you don't you go and tell someone etc empowering the children empowering mm -hmm. the children to have autonomy over their own body well since then they had her back every single year <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. because it was great education and empowered our children but i had to go for all the bullshit you know of that yeah. and and uh, and unfortunately i did that on a few things that i introduced into the group and there was always somebody in my face and was it upsetting yes but at the same time i went ahead and did it and mm -hmm. some of it they continued on because if it's something that's going to empower our children i'm going to be the one to do it and isn't it interesting then to look at the person who's losing their cool, shall yes. we say, losing Marbles. their dignity, <laughs> losing their dignity at you, and, yeah. and wonder, you know, well, what are you coming from that this is not okay? Yes. What have you been told? How repressed are you about yes. your body that you're terrified your child's going to learn about theirs? Yes, you're inhabiting this thing, so you might want to know how it works. Exactly, it's useful to know what you're here in you know yes. you're a spirit in a body and your body is here for a physical experience right so knowing what to do with it will affect how that physical experience goes to a large extent it's a bit like saying i'm going to climb in a car and i'm going to start driving that thing but don't give me any lessons right <laughs> yes, whatever you exactly. do don't teach me don't teach me how to drive <laughs> this thing because that's going to contaminate my view right, right? So I'm just going to get in this really powerful car and I'm going to go drive it. Right? And who cares so about the skittles of people I knock down along the way? Yeah. Right, which yeah. is pretty much what you're going to do with your body too because you yes. don't know what it's for. You exactly. don't know. What... I didn't get the facts of life until after. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and boy, you know, I went to an all-girls school and Me we too. had a lot of teenage pregnancies. Right. We had a lot of them. My best friend at the time, she was 10 days younger than me. And by the time she was 15, she got a kid. And I was just looking at her like, what the hell? Exactly. Your parents still dress, you, mom still dresses you in the morning. What do you mean you've got a kid? Yeah. You know, like, how exactly. did that happen? 
Exactly. And, and frankly, I think it happened largely because she didn't really know how that was going to happen. Exactly. And, you know. Yeah, because our parents didn't talk about it. It was a taboo subject, right? Just, you, know, you know, sex ed daughter. eventually came up in school, but, you know, it was, just, we don't talk about it. It's like, no, no, you know, you save it for marriage. What am I saving for marriage? I don't understand, you know. And, Is that uh, so you uh, don't know whether it's good or not? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, why are you saving it for marriage? And, right. and does he have to? Yes. Oh, oh yeah. And, and, no, you no, know, go and notch you your belt, do, son. Yes, exactly. And if you both have to save yourselves from marriage, then do either of you know what you're doing? Like, exactly. I just, I have a lot of questions about that. But I think originally it came up as a sort of, we'll avoid pregnancy this way. Yes. And, and it became a, a sort of, how do you control somebody? Well, you do it with shame and blame. So let's yes. make them feel awful about their bodies and then they won't do anything with them and, and we'll be okay. There won't be any kids. Yeah. So kind of started in that sort of twisty sort of way. Yeah. People continue it now, but I... I, well, I mean, we look what they do with a pregnant woman. You slut, you whore, you this and that. Oh, no. Has anybody addressed the guy? Right. right. And, it and, takes both, you know, and and it's like, uh, why did you two get together? Because today we really don't have the excuse of not knowing. It's all right. around us. It's on every program. It's on the internet. Somebody will tell you about it. Um, but, you know, it is, I hate this one-sidedness. It's that, uh, did you both know what you were doing when you were doing it? And if so, why didn't you take precautions? Did nobody tell you about that? And if you didn't know, why didn't you know? Because the family's so utterly protective that um, they didn't tell you anything and you've gone into something blindly just by the base how you feel. And it's it's also, you know, pro-life, right? Yeah. Let's go there for a moment. I love going there. Now, if you're pro-choice, it doesn't mean that you have to have an abortion. No. It doesn't mean that you have to be happy about abortion. What it means is you acknowledge that you have no right to tell somebody else what to do with their body. It's exactly. not your damn business. No. And the people who are pro-life are very often really pro-birth. Mm-hmm. They don't actually care about the life. They're not going to give any money. They're not going to help. They're not going to mm-hmm. fund education. They're not going to do anything to help that parent with that kid. Right. If it's a single parent, they're going to blame them for being a single parent. Right. Like the other person had nothing to do with it. Exactly. <laughs> and if they're in a relationship, well, you shouldn't have kids if you're poor. Right? right. On the other hand, you're pregnant, so you have to have the kid. So there's a lot yes. of messed up thinking going on there a lot of pro-birth but then i'm also living in a country that's extremely heavily pro-gun so (laughs) we're going to say that you have the child we're not going to look after you or the kid however you you you're responsible for that that's your problem but we will allow people to have guns so that your child has a very high risk of being shot to death in school or in a mall and anybody who thinks i'm being over the top just look at the stats oh please have a look at the stats in the u.s yes and you will see there was even a case not that long ago of a six-year-old bringing a gun in yes shooting the teacher yes you know like and the teacher was actually saying this child has problems this child has nobody was paying attention to what the teacher was saying so you have a situation where it's all pro-birth yes but after that, it is literally a crapshoot. <laughs> you can literally, you know, end your life go- by going to school. Yeah. And 
Oh, which I can't again, can right. look at. You must be talking about pro def. If right. you can protect the gun rights so much, so ridiculously, then you're obviously pro def. The, the thing that I find interesting about the whole pro-gun thing is, okay, if you like guns and, and you use them responsibly, Wisely. target yeah. practice and stuff, then, you know, or you, you're a hunter and you have a license for that, then that's a different thing. Nobody, nobody needs to have an automatic rifle. One nobody needs to have no. a weapon of mass destruction. No. Nobody needs to have one of those. No. The other thing is what often comes up in the U.S. is let's have background checks mm. and people get upset about that now i'm really curious like who are you owning a gun that doesn't want background checks yeah doing something do you have a problem uh -huh. because when you look at the mass shootings that go on the number of times there's some interesting factors here the number of times that that person a went and bought a bunch of guns that day mm -hmm. and the ammo no waiting time right. no background check that's that's one aspect to it. They probably have a mental health problem. It's a distinct possibility, but you never know because the cops usually kill them. So right. not many of them end up actually in custody. Yes. And, it's an and also look at the thing. age of them most of the time. Right. Very young. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things going on here. Yes. And, you know, the NRA like to say, well, it's mental health. Yeah. But you can't have background checks. So I'd like to say, uh, NRA, whose mental health are you questioning here? Because I'm mirroring back to you right now. Why are you so in defense of automatic weapons being in the hands of civilians? Right. What? And, right and, from the beginning. What did we talk about in the beginning? Right down to the dollar sign. Everything's yeah, to do exactly. with the dollar sign. As long as you're making money, oh, it's unfortunate a few people get murdered along the way. Well, you know, they must have been in the wrong place or, you know, the classic thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. Oh, God, yes. That's, that's the, the anthem that you sing after right. every mass murder. But nobody actually does anything about no. it. No, and, and those that are trying to do something are stifled. Right. But, but I'm so curious. Why? Why are background checks a problem? Yes. What? If you're a gun owner and you consider yourself to be a responsible gun owner, then surely you would pass a background check, would you not? And why does so, a teenager need a gun? And why does a civilian need a machine gun? Oh, hey, look, if you go to a place like Texas, they don't even have a lower age limit for buying weapons. Good God. Right? There isn't a The wild, wild limit. west, right, yeah. Literally, literally. Mm -hmm. But they don't have a lower age limit. But if if you want to, you know... I don't know, drink alcohol, there's an age limit yeah. that, but you can have a gun. I, I just, there's some things I mean, here that really the, need looking at. With the psychological aspect of that is that why is your ego so defined by carrying a gun? What is it that is lacking in you that you feel the only way you feel important is to carry a gun? There's, there's so many questions. And I mean, yeah. one of them is, well, you carry it for self-defense. You need an AR-15 for self-defense. Who the hell's coming after you? And why have you we got like... to a society that everybody has to carry a gun for self-defense? Why are you not paying attention to the crime that is paranoying everyone into wanting to carry a gun? Well, the, the argument here usually is that the criminals don't get background checks and the criminals 
don't follow the rules. However, they don't have to, honestly, because nobody does. Right. So that's the problem, you know, yeah. like th that argument doesn't really hold up. When None you of those arguments Rano. hold up, but really, quite honestly. Yeah. It is, no, of course they don't. Yeah. But no. even superficially, it doesn't yes, I know. hold up. It's just... You know, but there's so many things, and this again is the accountability thing has disappeared. Where self responsibility, yes, you are responsible for yourself, but you also have a responsibility to the people around you yes. not to inflict harm. Exactly. Not to cause somebody else to inflict harm. And that would be, you know, keeping people safe from your teen having guns or you having a gun and, and losing your shit at somebody someday. And, you know, and there you go. I mean, there's road rage over here with guns. Oh, there's, yes. there's all kinds of things. Yes. You, you have to tiptoe so that you don't annoy somebody in case they right. have a gun. And with the concealed carry permits that all sorts of people have and you don't know who's got them, they can have a gun on their person in church. Right. They could have a gun on their person in any establishment other than possibly a courthouse. And I'm saying possibly, mm -hmm. but you know, it's generally speaking, you have a right to have your gun. Why? When that amendment was put into the constitution, yes. it was a single ball musket. Right. And there was no armed forces in the U S right. Now we have a very big, very structured, built, weaponized, armed forces here you don't need citizens with ar-15s that's that's where i'm going with that one and i'll stay with that all day uh, exactly but who who needs that uh, horror and that responsibility of it and you know again back to a teenager or a young person who needs to carry a gun who goes into a school and just shoots everybody up because somebody bullied them along the line that those are one of the forgotten children they're one of the children that have been let down being mm -hmm. led astray or not being heard or feel feel that that's their only recourse whether it's done out of hate or whether it's done out of pain we've let that child down and, you know, this is our Forgotten Children series book that hopefully will be coming out for Christmas is about everybody contributing that chapter of awareness of what's wrong, but how we can be empowered to put it right. And the only way it's going to get empowered to put it right is when we're aware what is wrong and what we need to do to put it right. And one of it, listen to your children. You're the custodian of your children. You don't own them. They're not your property. You're here to guide them morally, spiritually, physically, and financially, in every way, educationally, along the way, to enhance who they are, to give them the structure and the tools and that they need to be of service, as we all are, of service to humanity. We are all here to serve one another. How we do it is, is our meaningful purpose, is our calling, is our instrument. But if we don't teach those children to value themselves, how are they going to grow up to know the value of life itself? And here's an interesting thought to add to that. If Ugg and Glug, back in the cave person era, didn't try and improve things, and yeah. didn't work to get better and the next generation and the next generation, we would still be in the caves doing the cave yes. drawing with Ugg and Glug. Yes. So, you know, it is our responsibility to try to facilitate the growth of that person in your charge, in your custody, to be who they are, not to be you in their format or 
to reflect that you're a good parent for other people to say you're a good parent. Right. That often gets in the way. Yes. Other people's approbation is not your child's best interest. No. No. So going and, to the you know, and I, th- I think interest. it's also, you know, you know, I'm at the stage where my kids are 30, you know, to 40. And it's like, you know, writing this memoir. I know I've inflicted pain. They, I know they've, they've, they've got scars there for me not knowing better or not or being at the stage of where I'm at. Um, never physically or never, you know, uh, what I thought emotionally. But it was because of what I was going through. I wasn't there for them at that time. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge lesson, I think, for, for parents to understand. If you're not happy or if you're not in a safe space yourself, you can't provide that happiness or safeness for your child. So the oxygenate yourself first. Be mm-hmm. whole yourself is the greatest gift you can give your children. And we don't teach it. We tell a parent the moment they're a parent, you've now got to sacrifice yourself for yeah, your children. What on earth is that? I know. What on earth is that? Yeah. I mean, that that is another one of those, you know, I got a lot of soapboxes, but that, that will be one <laughs> where you are not – ever sacrificing yourself for your child I don't care what you do Mm -hmm. you made that decision and you made that decision because you thought you would get something out of it again human beings don't make decisions that they think they're going to hate yeah we don't do that we're not wired that way so if you decided to give up x so that your child could have y you made that decision now I made certain decisions when my kids were growing up, that might not have been my number one decision for me. Exactly. But I was totally congruent with it as being the best decision I could come up with for them. Yeah. That was not a sacrifice. That no. was me making a decision. That was an adjustment to the times, to but the it, situation. But it, was also, it was also me just making a decision yeah. based on what I had. And I had kids, so I made a decision based on that. It's never a sacrifice, though. You cannot sacrifice yourself for your child. Just like a father does not babysit his children for crying out loud. You know, yes, exactly. <laughs> dad's staying home with the kids. He's not babysitting. He's right. being a parent. He's being a parent. Exactly. It's, it's good. You know, and if there's a stay at home dad, he is a valuable parent being exactly. with his kids. And and that shouldn't be ridiculed or, or no. considered weird. He's not Why any less of a weird? man. Because he's decided to stay home with the kids. So, no, you know, fact, he's, he's yeah. more of a man. Yes, exactly. Way. I you agree. Know? I agree. Like he's, he's taking the tougher option because you and I have both had kids and we both know that the toughest job yes. is to be with your kids at home. Yes. Because you're on all the time and you never 24/7. know what's coming next. <laughs> yeah. You never know what's coming next and you haven't had the sleep and you've got all these things coming in and people are telling you how you should be doing things and you're not doing it that way. And, you know, it's a lot. Meanwhile, your partner goes off to work and they have a very anticipated day and they come back anticipating that their evening is going to be a certain way. And meanwhile, you know, your hair's sticking out in 10 different directions because (laughs) you've had a hell of a day. Yes. You know, so dads that choose that, kudos, man, kudos. Yes, exactly. I'm not less of a parent for that. But dads don't babysit. No. Dads have their children. Exactly. Co-parenting. It's, it's another one of those. It's another one of those mindset things where we we have this inequality, this inequity. More importantly, of you know, this parent has more of a nurturing role. Why? Right. What? Why did that happen? They had you know? rest. They're more nurturing. <laughs> Maybe for breastfeeding time. Sure. Yes. yes. That doesn't. Dad can't step in and do that. But the rest. Yes. Yeah. Why not? 
You know, you need both parents, ideally. I, that's what I'm told. I didn't get that situation. Well, no, no, I, you know, but, you know. Just, despite the fact that my daughter didn't get that growing up, what she has got in a husband is that, no, we both made this baby. We're both going to raise this baby. And right. they are both participants of this baby. They take turns to get up in the night to feed uh, the, the baby. And uh, they're both hands-on with their right. children in the raising of them. And yes, he goes to work. She does when she's, she's on maternity leave right now. And when they both come back, all right, she primarily does the cooking because he ain't such a great cook, but they both share with the laundry, the, the vacuuming, uh -huh. the changing of the diapers, the, all of that. It is both together. And he'll do more outside work. So, yeah. The flexibility yes. of an equitable relationship, I yes. think, is key to showing the kids how humans behave. You know, yeah. or how humans can behave optimally. When we start narrowing roles down, that also brings in a whole story of its own. And what are you narrowing your child to? Could your daughter maybe be an astronaut? Well, not <laughs> if she has to do the dishes every day. Right. You know, that that might be a different vibe. Yes. You know? And I'm no, not saying don't, don't limit your kids, you know, and exactly, you know, from 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 whatever the moment they're born to you know, five, six, seven, eight, even while they're going through school, they're going to want to be the fireman, the astronaut, the chef, the cook, the bum, the artist. They're going to want to be all of those things because they're in discovery of what yeah. is it that grabs them. What is it that, oh, I really got to do this. I really want to follow this path. And the more experience they have dabbling in and out of those other things, the more they're going to know the path that they do want to take. And even if they finish school, uh, okay, I don't really want to go to university right now because I don't know what I want to do. Go and live life. Uh -huh. My daughter went back to university at 27 when she decided I want to be a social worker, when she finally decided what she wanted to do. Up until then, she had been in an acting thing for a while. And she went out and worked and she traveled. And it's like, no, I, I know what I know what. I really want to do now. So there is never any age thing. Oh, you, what do you mean? You you haven't gone to university. You haven't got a degree. You haven't got a great job. You haven't got 2.5 kids and a picket fence by 30. You know, it's like, please, <laughs> please. Yeah, yeah. Leave well, so it we, to be presented, it did. <laughs> we, we operate still under this very heavy umbrella of norms and what we can even loosely term as values. I question Yes. But anyway, we'll leave that there. Loosely we'll told. do another show on that, for sure. We'll do a whole other thing on that. But, yes. you know, we operate under this heavy umbrella. <laughs> so when you can see it, maybe you can brush off some of the nonsense and brush yeah, off exactly. more of the nonsense. Give yourself a break. And right. I'd just like to wrap up with everything that I've said today. Please, if you're the parent, understand I'm not pointing fingers at you. No. It's tough being a parent. And I can, certainly am not somebody to say I've been perfect by any means. It's not my point, and that's not what I'm here for. Right. But just know that there are other ways, and if you have an inkling to go another way, then do that thing. And and also, it doesn't matter how old your kids are. You know, mine are 34, 38, and 40, right? And because they're all winter children, all about to turn another number. And, you know, I know that the that there is areas that I, I let them down in because I let myself down in them. But they're aware of that. There is no blame, right? It's this, um, we talk about it because in talking about it, that means that they're not going to follow that path, right? They're aware of it. 
And had I done this and had I done that, that might have been more favorable. But I did what I did in the time and the best that what I know. And, Precisely. And, and if you can learn better from that, because you know that didn't work and you're going to go and do something different, right? Then all the better. It's like that is what it is. Yeah. It is what it is. Don't shame your parents. My parents were, you know, they were born 1920. So the way they were brought up, right? My mother was the seventh child of the seventh child. Uh, they came from um, India. My father, my grandfather was a colonel in the Indian Army and British Army. And he came, um, they came back to England when my mother was 12 and they were told the father had died. She found out some 50 odd years later that he'd been institutionalized for post-traumatic stress, which they didn't know about then, right? That he'd been institutionalized. And the shame of it was too much. It was better to say he was dead, right? Those are the things that she grew up with. Mm. She was beaten at the age of three, wanting a hug from her mother, right? So I can't blame the way she brought me up. And right. I was the wild child. I mean, my dad died when I was 11 and it was mum and I. So I was the wild child. And she didn't quite know what to do with me anyway. But at the same time, we moved to South Africa when I was a teen and she was in discovery of her womanhood, not of the restrictions of pearls and tweed and restrictions of England. Suddenly wearing wigs, riding motorcycles, going to parties, you know, just completely in discovery of who she was. And actually it was awesome. that, at that level that we actually really connected. So, you know, it's like we're always in growth. Please don't think that just because we're parents, we know it all, but we're at a certain age when now we put it out to pasture. We are constantly in discovery and we are constantly growing. And there's still much that you can learn from us, right? And if you're still listening to us at this point, let me just say you get major kudos. Because exactly. Because a long and interesting conversation. It and has. If you're still here for it, then I'm giving you a big round of applause. That is I, I am too. And that is my beautiful audience. They know that they, you know, the nectar, the onion peel, the wisdom that they're going to get from these shows comes in the, in the fact that we give it time, time to unfold, time to actually discover what else to know. No quick fixes here. No headliners. We're so, in for the deep dive. And that's what my beautiful audience that listen to us. So thank you, audience, for being with me for the last 10 years and listening to all these shows, learning from them. As I say, listen, learn and apply. Right. That's, there you go. That's the golden standard. Yeah, exactly. Because when you do oh. truly listen and you hear and you learn from it, then you're going to pivot and do something different and apply it in a different way. So that's what it's all about. So and your actually, website. Can I just say, can I just yeah. say ahead of you saying the website, anybody that would like to send me feedback, you're about to get my contact information. I am happy to have a conversation with you. I'm happy to have the feedback. And if you've got questions or comments, anything like that, you know, hit me up and you're about to hear how you can do that. And how can they do that? Okay, my website is www.gaffenstone.com. Gaffen is G-A-F as in Frank, F as in Frank, E-N, stone like a rock.com. That's me. You can find me on social media the same way. There's only one Mickey Gaffenstone out there, so I'm really easy to find. LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Instagram, those are typically where you can find me. And my email is Again, Mickey, M-I-K-K-I, at gaffinstone.com. So I am so easy to contact. And if you'd like to message me, I'm very happy to hear from you. Just let me know that you were listening to Sarah's podcast and let me know which parts interested you, which parts gave you some thoughts, 
which parts maybe you don't agree with. I'm right. always interested to hear why. Yes. And of course, your podcast is inspiredchoicenetwork.com podcast. So people can listen to that as well. And, uh, you know, the whole thing about what we're doing here is um, having people hear something from a different perspective. Right. And, and when you know, okay, I hadn't thought about that. That's fruitful conversation. I'm constantly saying to people, have podcasts. You have book clubs, have a podcast club. Everybody listen to the podcast, take notes, come together and share what you got out of it. That expands the knowledge, that opens up to the conversation, that has everything just elevate up to another level. And that is just so enlightening for you. So please, folks, podcast party. Um, you can have the wine, you know, you can listen to it all together or listen to it beforehand and just come and share the perspectives, whatever you want to do, but converse about it. Because when you talk with each other about what each other got from it, that expansion of knowledge is absolutely wonderful, right? And don't I forget to share. That. And my my show in itself is called Navigating Complicated Relationships. Exactly. You'd be astonished to know. So yes. if you find me on the Inspired Choices Network, and I love the idea that Sarah just put yes. out there of podcast parties or pod yes. podcast clubs, like what? That's amazing. Yeah. Let's yeah. do more of that. You do it that. for a book. Why aren't you doing it for a podcast? Especially podcasts that have time and depth in there because we're giving you a lot right? a lot to yeah. take in and a lot to converse about and just imagine how much knowledge you're going to now be able to share with other people so and you that's know, what it's if, about if you message me i'll give you some wine recommendations to go with the podcast <laughs> <laughs> we've got some wine for your whining right <laughs> wine chocolate and podcast I oh my god perfect well actually i might even say scotch chocolate and podcast too but wine's oh, fine uh, as well. i like tequila but you know okay yeah <laughs> whatever your fancy is it's about getting together and also understanding folks it doesn't matter if you have a different perspective from somebody else this isn't this is you can agree to disagree but it's also opening up to why do you feel that way why do you see it that way it's about wonderment intrigue inquisitiveness opening up that conversation there is no wrong or right it's just please be open and listen to each other because you're all coming from the same space but you're just articulating it and seeing it in a different way so the more we talk about it the more we're going to change things and i'm so delighted you're in the book because you know that she's going to bring a really juicy chapter to the book folks so and there's going you to bet. be more shows we've got more to talk about you're coming back again we've got to do the next show we totally do. I can do this all day. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, you. folks, uh, you know, please, we've talked to you a lot today about a really kind of broad spectrum, but it's all about raising our gifted children. It's about being that parent. It's about looking at our children, not as a commodity, not as something you own, but the responsibility and the delight of this beautiful life that you're here to guide. You're here to, to help navigate through life in a way where they can become that beautiful light that we all need and when you do it that way oh my god they're going to excel beyond what you ever thought was possible and in it you're going to learn from your children and that's one of the greatest gifts that you can have so folks please pay attention to what your children are saying listen to them learn from them converse with them on whatever level they're at but invite them in because they've got a lot to teach us too so until next time folks bye for now we hope that you enjoyed the show there are so many more for you here on selfdiscoverywisdom.com 
Just go to the podcast tag at the top there and you will see all the many genres and all 3,000 shows ready for your listening. We are here to serve you, to help you on your journey of life. And we know that through inspiration, it begets invitation. We are supported by you, the listeners, and those that we interview. Anything that you can spare us in donation would be greatly accepted. And we do hope that you enjoy the next show.